Father, uh, we just bless your name. Uh, we want to thank you again uh, just for another day, uh, another Sunday, Lord God, that we can worship you together corporately. Lord God, we understand that we can worship by our lonesome in our own little house, in our own little room, Lord God, in our own little minds, Lord God, but there's something special when the saints come together to give you your worth, give you your due, Lord God. So we recognize this, Lord God, and we add to it the fact uh, that you've already done great things uh, for us, Lord God, so we praise you to go along with that as well. So, Father, in our, in our hearts and in our minds, Lord God, we pray that your word would be like the drippings of a honeycomb, that it would be sweet to our minds and our palates, but yet, Lord God, it would be like that uh, fresh seed, Lord God, that as soon as it hits the dirt and, and the water hits uh, the dirt and the sunshine hits it, it begins to sprout right away. Let that be true of us today, Lord. So we humble ourselves to you and we submit ourselves to you today. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we continue our series entitled Authentic Discipleship, which, of course, it covers a variety of topics related to what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Recall that being a disciple is more than attending classes. You can't fully be a disciple of Jesus Christ just by going to a class. And yes, that includes my classes as well. That's all a, a, a part of the equation. But being a disciple means living as a disciple as well. Today, here in Matthew chapter 20, we will walk through uh, the message of a parable of Jesus Christ. What's interesting about parables is that uh, some of his parables are so simple. On the other hand, some of his parables are, uh, they, they appear to be so mysterious, like they are locked away in heaven, in the counsel of God's will. Today's parable is no exception. Yet I believe there is a message that the Spirit of God wants to convey to us, else it would have never been found in the Word of God to begin with. So as we process through, process through this uh, parable about the kingdom of heaven, about the master of the house and the laborers, I want you to engage by keeping these three questions in mind. As we walk through... Keep three questions in mind. Number one, what happened? Number two, what did I expect? And then finally, number three, what does this mean for Jesus' disciples? Those three questions need to be answered to get to the heart of this parable. Let's proceed. What happened? Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven, and you know that in the other gospel it mentions the kingdom of God. 
But Matthew was concerned himself uh, with an audience of, 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 of Jewish believers who revered God's name so much that they didn't, didn't even want to mention it. Didn't even want to mention his name. Uh, so Matthew, uh, he says, for the kingdom of heaven in place of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Comparison with the kingdom. This parable is one of many that Jesus uses to teach people about his com coming kingdom and what to expect. It is not enough, in other words, Jesus is saying, to call yourself or me to call myself a Christian and act as if nothing else has changed in my life. This kingdom mindset is all important and must be embraced, not just in theory, right? So some people can understand in theory what it means to be a Christian. But what it means to be a Christian in deed and in heart. And just a quick look at our mission statement should be a clue to you. And our mission statement is what? To proclaim what? With? Right, so there it is right there. To proclaim the kingdom of God with an anticipation of Christ's soon return. Now, that's not scripture, but that's scripture to me. Because that's how the Lord spoke to me. So proclaiming God's kingdom centers on the gospel, but know that the kingdom of God is more expansive than that. Amen? Now that is at the kernel. This is what Jesus wants us to know, but there are other things. In Jesus' teaching about his kingdom, he often uses comparisons to assist the hearer in understanding how they need to respond to the kingdom realities. So he speaks these comparisons so we can understand this is like this, so we can get a grip on things. Our scripture today is a comparison. Here's a comparison. You can take a look at it if you need to. Our scripture today is a comparison between the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, and, here it is, the conversation between the master of the house and the laborers. This is what this is about. This parable is a comparison about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and with the conversation, conversation between the master of the house and the laborers. 
Jesus tells us the kingdom of God is not identical to this parable. He doesn't say that. He says it is like. And his point speaks to a deeper spiritual issue. So in this parable, as we have read, uh, there were people standing out, hanging around, who had nothing, who were giving something. Amen? These are folks who were standing out on the corner. Why? Because they wanted a what? A J-O-B, not a Job. Uh, they wanted a job. The laborers, the master of the house found, were all of equal standing, even though they were called into the laborer at different times. You know, one group was not better than the other group. They all were hanging out, hoping to get a job somehow in some way. So the workers in our passage uh, today, uh, that they all had the same goal, and that was what? To get a job, they needed to make money. Because it appears they had no professional skills, they were relegated to taking whatever job they could find. When there is no income coming into your house, then you try to make money the best way you can. Amen? Most of us cannot uh, stand around talking about in the middle of the floor, money cometh to me, right? Because that money ain't going to fall out of the ceiling of your house in most cases. Amen? Probably in 99.99999999 and a half percent of the time, your money ain't just going to show up in your hand. I don't care how much you profess. For these men, it meant hoping that someone would employ them, hoping that someone would give them a job. But one thing I can say about these men as well, at least they got up and went and stood in a place that they can try to get a job, amen? Right? Some folks today, uh, they try to get a job by looking at TV all day long. Right? Yeah, we don't necessarily, there actually are day laborers they have around that you can drive to places and pick guys up to have them to do work for you. That is true. But for most of us, the way that we do it is we do what? We get on the internet, right? And we fill out applications and we make phone calls. So even though we ain't standing on the corner, our idea of being a day laborer, trying to get that job, is by doing these other things, right? For us, it means sending out ap applications and resumes and making those phone calls and, and oftentimes being rejected over and over again. So one thing important to know is who the main players are in, in these verses. Uh, number one, we have the master of the house. The master of the house was responsible for the general administration and oversight of the day-to-day -day activities of the entire property. Number two, we had the laborers. They are your average run-of-the-mill workers who were hustling to make a living. Amen? I remember that uh, one time I had absolutely no money. I was just broke, you know? The B in my middle name was not for Brian. It was for broke, right? And the only thing that I could even get was the job that my father had given to me uh, at another place that he used to work. So you know what I did one summer? I cleaned toilets. Yeah, I did. I, I mopped floors and I took out garbage. I did it long enough so I can get what I needed to have. But I wasn't too good to do that, amen? Some folks are too good to take out garbage. 
They, ain't, you, you, they don't have any money. They ain't got nothing, but they're too good to do that. But I'm telling you, if the Lord puts you in the place uh, where that's all you can get, you better get, get it while the getting is good. Then finally, the owner of the vineyard, it all belongs to him. Things need to function well on his property because it will cause him to prosper and cause him to look good. So all the people that were hired, uh, they put their time in, and now it was time to get paid. Say, uh-oh. Oftentimes when it's time for your money to come, sometimes you know when you're dealing with some people, it's like, uh-oh. What does verse 8 say? And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And those bells and whistles should be going off in your mind already. Ring-a-ding-ding, what's going on here? Now first off, we would probably think that the person who worked the longest would get paid first and not the last. Amen? But that probably doesn't disturb us too much because the first hired, we think in our mind, would be treated in a way that is fair and right. That's what happened. What did we expect? What did we expect? Verse 9. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the denarius. I know some of you are probably saying, time to riot, time to riot. Verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. You know, we all expect people to be treated fairly and with equity, don't we? The last ones were hired first uh, to get paid, and they were paid the same amount as those who had worked all day long. Now, come on, tell the truth. If that happened to you, how many of you would go and give that boss a piece of your mind? Go ahead and lift your, go ahead and lift your hand up. I know most of you would. Uh, most of you don't have your hand up. You, uh, you probably know it's true in your, in, in your life. Uh, or if you're saying that's not true, you, you just might be lying. I'm not calling you a lie, right? I'm just saying you just might be lying because I know I would be with that group. I probably would have been the first one there saying, wait a minute. Uh, some of you would probably be ready to tear that stuff, to tear that place up. You know what? Well, he's going to give me my denarius, but on the way out, I'm taking that plant with me. I'm taking that. I'm taking that ink pen. I'm taking a ream of paper with me on the way out, right? Yeah, all, all that stuff. That's what you're trying to, that's what you say to yourself in your mind. So he may not give me more money, but I got my eye on that thing over there, and I'm going to get paid the way I should get paid. We all would probably cry out, where is justice? We want justice. And then we say to ourselves, now it is time to form unions so we can get the money that we deserve for the hard work that we put in. 
But I want you to know that in God's economy, there is complete justice. But also know that in God's economy, there are no unions. As a matter of fact, last time I checked in Scripture, the last person who tried, uh, the last being that tried to form a union in, 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 in heaven and tried to have his way in heaven, that he got kicked out as well as a whole bunch of other things. God said, ain't no union up here in heaven. He said, it's my way or the hell way. I don't think there's a soul in here in this place today that reads this story or hears it and, 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 and really want, uh, don't want to side with those laborers, those workers. But mind you, this is from our point of view our human relations point of view. Without question, this story, it upsets our equilibrium, our equilibrium of what should be right or what should be wrong or what is fair. And we say to ourselves, it's just not fair. Why should not those men who work more hours get paid more? It is at this point that we must dig into our understanding our understanding of Scripture, to mine its treasure for kingdom understanding. Check this out. It seems that the last workers who entered into this agreement, entered into the agreement, did you check this out? They entered to, into the agreement not really know, knowing how much they're going to get paid. Did you see that? The, uh, those last folks who entered into the agreement, who decided to work, they really didn't know how much they were going to get paid. It was only the first group who entered into the agreement and said, you know, you'll get a denarius a day. They said, okay, this is right. Let's do this thing. Isn't that something? Verse 2, look at it. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others. Verse 4, and to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right... I will give you. The last workers entered into that agreement based solely on trust. They had not worked all day and probably would have gone home without any financial resources had it not been for the master of the house. Spells trouble to a household if you ain't got no money when you reach to, uh, when you make uh, the end of the bottom of the, the end of the rope that you have your financial rope. You get to the end of your rope and there's nothing else left. What do you do? There's no more hanging on. You're done. So you trust. We trust. But it is not a blind trust, but a trust in someone who is known for having a wealth of resources and for being faithful. But some wealthy people can also be some of the least generous people that we know. Amen? Now, before you say amen, also know that if you are not wealthy, that you can also be some of the, the least generous people that we know. It ain't just people who have a whole lot of money. It's the people who got middle kind of money and low kind of money. As a matter of fact, some of the, uh, the more generous people I know are those people who have the least. But nevertheless, know that anybody on this spectrum can have a spirit of stinginess. 
So in the context with this understanding, one focus of our passage seems to make spiritual sense. Check this out. You might want to write this down. This is not our main point, and this is not the main point of the parable itself, uh, but here it is. The equity of spiritual rewards in relationship to our faith. The equity of spiritual rewards in relationship to our faith. In God's economy, he places the greatest emphasis on those who live according to what? Faith. Let's try that again. In God's economy, he places greatest emphasis on those who live according to faith. According to faith. But this is not the main thrust of the passage. Yet uh, complaints, uh, they begin to roll in from the people who insist that they deserve better. They have a personal sense of entitlement. This is exactly what we see from those who were the first ones hired. And our sense of justice is it's always the ones who enter the gate first that receive the first and the best spoils. While the Johnny-come-latelys are stuck with the leftovers, right? What do we say? The early bird gets what? The worm, right? Or if you're first in line, you get the pick of the litter, right? You get, the pick of, you get the best when you're first. So they are living according to this human philosophy, which says that if I'm first in line, I get the best. So they're saying to themselves, since we labored all day, since you called us first, we should do better than those who only work for one hour. They were trying to come to terms with the incongruity between how things had uh, operated in their lives versus uh, the present reality. They were living by a rule of life. But their rule of life is not the rule of God's kingdom. When our rule of life is challenged by the rule of God's kingdom, there is always significant pushback in our hearts. You see, our minds have been uh, conformed to this world. So when we hear God's word, uh, our hearts and our minds say, well, wait a minute now. A mind say, I know all that to be true, but wait, hold on. Wait a minute. Uh, I need to put that in check for a minute. So we push back because this kingdom rule does not play according to the rules we have played uh, to all of our lives. This is one of the reasons why people may reject the gospel, why they reject Jesus Christ and the notion of being restored according to God's good grace, because this is outside of the way I've lived my life. I don't want or need Jesus Christ. That doesn't even make sense. How can God give me his love for absolutely nothing? I don't have to do anything. So they reject it. Why? Because it is so, so much in opposition to the way that we live. So our idea about the way things should go is in conflict the ways of the kingdom of heaven. So when the first group of laborers came uh, to be compensated, they thought they would be compensated more, uh, but instead received what they had agreed upon, one denarius. They thought they would receive more because they, in essence, compared the quantity of their work with the quantity of the work of others. And this is always uh, one of our biggest areas of discontent 
right? As soon as we compare ourselves with others, all of a sudden we get problems in our hearts and in our minds. In other words, we're happy. Those laborers were fine. They had agreed, they had agreed to the work. They didn't have a job. They now have a job. They worked all day. We didn't hear one complaint in scripture from them, did we? No. They were completely silent, so we can say they were pretty much satisfied with what they were doing. But as soon as they made a comparison between them and somebody else, all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute now, wait a minute, it ain't right, it ain't right. So the reasoning of the first group of leaders for better treatment is as follows. We can track this in verse 12. Number one, they said that the last invited laborers only worked for one hour. Their other complaint was that they were made equal with them. And also, they labored through the majority of the works. And then, not only that, they labored when it was hot outside. You see that adjective that it uses? It was not just hot. The scripture says it was what kind of hot? Scorching hot. Man, I'd be, I'd be in trouble, I tell you. So here's the money breakdown of all the workers. Uh, there were, in essence, five groups of workers. And let's say if we paid them, let's say if we paid them $9 an hour, right? The very first group of workers, uh, they would have gotten paid $9 an hour. The second group of workers who started at uh, 9 a.m. So the first group started at 6 a.m. The second group started at 9 a.m. Do the math yourself. Uh, the way that they would calculate the hours, the first hour of the day would be 6 a.m., right? And then from there you calculate according to our, our, the way that we do time. So if you started at 6, you would make $9 an hour. If you started at 9, it was $12 an hour. If you started at 12, it was $18 an hour. Isn't that great? If you started at 3 p.m., you would get paid $36 an hour. And then finally, if you started at 5 p.m., you would have gotten paid $108 an hour. So imagine you getting paid $9 an hour for doing all this work, and then all of a sudden this other folk person to get paid $108 for doing the same thing for less time? In the end, all of them would have gotten paid, in essence, $108. All of them. You break it down per hour, that was how much they got paid. So we expected the people to get paid according to the amount of work they did, even if they agreed upon another amount. But at the end of the day, they could choose not to work for this guy again, right? So, you know, get your money, but don't go back to him again. So what does this mean for his disciples? What does all of this mean? Uh, look at verse 13. Verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Thank you, Lord. Uh, so uh, the last will be first. 
and the first last. Thank you, Lord. I'm sorry, I, I got to write this down. So we live with the understanding that God is gracious and operates according to his sovereignty. We live with the understanding that God is gracious and he operates according to his sovereignty. The master of the house, in response uh, to one of the complainers, addressed him as friend. Look at verse 13. Call them friend. Our expectation may be that the master of the house would become very rough with them because they were so unthankful, but he called him friend. Listen to this. In the text, it is interesting to see that uh, when friend is used in Matthew with this particular construction, it does not necessarily refer to one who has the best relationship. So in your mind, if you think he's calling him friend because he's his partner, his homeboy, something like that, no, 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 no. Look at Matthew chapter 22, very quick. Matthew 22, verse 12 and 13. Matthew 22, verses 12 and 13. You can read the context more later. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. Friend? Matthew 26, verse 48. Matthew 26, verse 48. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him, verse 49. <clears throat> and he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him, verse 30. Jesus said to him, what did he say? Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid, hold, laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So when you see the word friend here in Scripture, don't automatically assume they're good friends, right? Third grade lesson, right, in English. Don't use, uh, David, don't use the same word uh, that you're going to define in order to actually define that word, right? Right, but they're not close associates. Friend, in these cases, oftentimes in this storyline, it gives us an idea of mentioning and bringing judgment, referring to Judas the betrayer. So in response to these workers, the master of the house insisted they take what they had agreed upon and go about their business. Get your money and get out of my place. This is done with two imperatives or commands. Take what belongs to you and go. It's like he said, things were going well as long as we operated according to the, the terms of our agreement. But as soon as you try to dictate how I run my business, then you're trying to run in, like my wife says, you're trying to run in my lane and out of your own lane, stay in your own lane. And by the way, just in case you're wondering, uh, she doesn't say that to me. So this message may be difficult to accept, especially if you are the type of person who likes to play according to the rules. 
you're, you know, those hard lessons that some of my mentors used to tell me, you know, life isn't always fair. I said, you know, you, you don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that life isn't always fair stuff, but it is a reality. Life isn't always happy. You will have high times and you will have low times. Uh, so what Jesus is telling us with this imperative, we have to know how God operates in his kingdom. This is what this is about. This is not about, you know, here are two things that you need to do or three things that you need to do. Uh, this, this parable is about, an, uh, about the acceptance of God's personal, uh, how he operates. In the back of our minds, we may still struggle with the idea that the first group of workers, they were simply treated unfairly. I was listening to a, uh, a former uh, uh, founder, I think it was of, 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 of Facebook, and he was talking about Silicon Valley. And he was being interviewed. And the question was asked him, is Silicon Valley ethical? Is Silicon Valley loyal in this order? Is it ethical and is it loyal? And if you don't know what Silicon Valley is, kids, this is where all the brain work, a lot of the brain work is done for all your, your iPads and all this other stuff there in California, if you don't know. But the gentleman, he responded this way. I think Silicon Valley is deeply moral. Then he says this, and I think it is ethically gray. See, that doesn't balance out to me. How can you be deeply moral but ethically gray? To me, these things, they go together. And when one is compromising, there's oftentimes compromise in the other. But then he says, finally, but people care to do the right thing. Huh? Figure that one out. So if you work in places like those that uh, they try to say everything is good, right? Everything is uh, cool when you're part of a team, right? If you have worked a job, one of the things you soon discover is that there is a hidden code of ethics and morality. There are things that they tell you, and there's things that they don't tell you. They may say one thing, but do another without ever telling you while you try to do the right thing. But this is therefore one of those points where uh, we must submit ourselves to the will of God. We must do it because he insists upon it, and we must do it if we are really going to be called his disciples. So we have to accept this idea the kernel of the, the parable, and I'm getting, and I'm going to get to it in a second. I'm almost done at the same time. Uh, so when I give it to you, you better write it down and, and go running with it. His disciples, we don't have a choice. We can't live outside of his, his will because we live according to his kingdom mandate. And it is so, what God says is so otherworldly. 
It just seems like uh, following God here, it just it can't be done. Uh, God, what are you talking about? I can't live right on my job. Don't you see what they're doing? It's impossible. God calls down, said the kingdom of God is like. Right. Hold on. So let's face it, if God only operated according to the way you want, then you would really be God and not God. If God only operated according to the way that you want, that I want, then we would be God and not God would be God. To instruct the Lord would mean that your knowledge base and power would have to exceed his. If this is not the case, then how should we then respond to his word? We respond through a will to submit to him. And through the power of his spirit, transform our minds into being kingdom-minded. Have a kingdom mindset. Know that what God calls us to operate in and through is not the same as the rest of the world. Isn't this what the parable is about in the first place? It's about understanding and aligning our thoughts and our lives according to the kingdom way of thinking. Kingdom way of thinking. So Jesus is instructing us what the kingdom is like to prepare us for a future time, but also to walk more at peace in this world that remains in social, cultural, political, and personal and emotional flux 24-7. There is simply no stability in the world. And here it is. Therefore, the point of this parable is this. The rule of a disciple's life is to live by God's sovereign grace and accept it. The rule of a disciple's life is to live by God's sovereign grace. Number one, his sovereignty means God does what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. But also his sovereign grace, he gives to us what we don't deserve. But then we must accept it. The rule of a disciple's life is to live by God's sovereign grace and accept it. We did not deserve anything we possess, including our salvation. We didn't deserve it. Grace is what we did not deserve, yet the Lord in his love gave us a great measure of it. A grace on top of grace on top of grace. God's kingdom is ruled by a set of standards that far exceeds ours. That when we think that we are making our best effort and everything is all lined up the way it should be, it still falls short to God's glory. God's kingdom is high and lifted up. So God says, follow me, follow my ways. If you are going to be my disciple, follow my rule of living and it is through my kingdom agenda. <laughs> know this, brothers and sisters, that things are not the way they appear, so don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by all the books that come out that say, well, no, this is not true about the Bible. This is not true about God. Because last time I checked, that stuff has been going on for thousands of years, and God's word still remains, but all those folks are dead. Don't be fooled. So this is kingdom thinking. God says, transform your mind. Live according to God's grace and according to his sovereignty. Let us pray.